Hello and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast. I hope you're all having a lovely week so far, but we've now reached the weekend. Exciting. And what better way to start your weekend then with the TFA podcast. Last week, I promised you a podcast with a very special guest. In fact, I promised you a podcast with a Premier League winner. And I've kept my word. On today's podcast, I will be joined by the former Manchester United, West Ham, Reading, MK Dons and Cambridge United player, Luke Shadwick. Luke joined Manchester United's academy at a young age and went on to make almost 40 appearances for the English Giants, picking up a Premier League winner's medal in the 2000-2001 season after playing 22 times in all competitions for the Red Devils. With more than 500 games under his belt in professional football, Luke has now moved into the exciting world of coaching, heading the Football Fun Factory as the Director of Football. Luke has kindly agreed to give us his time to discuss all things football and coaching, and I know you will all learn a lot from him because I certainly did. I'm your host Adam Scully and I hope you all enjoy the following episode. Before we begin though please make sure to rate the podcast five stars hopefully. It's genuinely appreciated so so much. If the podcast is to continuously grow and get better guests on such as Luke we'll need your help so it really does mean a lot if you could give us a five star rating and we'll do our very best to bring you our very best audio content. Anyway enough of me waffling let's go speak to Luke Chadwick. Luke, welcome to the TFA podcast. How have you been? Yeah, very well. Thank you for for having me, Adam. How's your uh, How's your week been so far? How was your bank holiday? Yeah, I had a um, nice, relaxing bank holiday. Went up to Man United on Sunday to watch the um, the Aston Villa game, which was um, enjoyable. Enjoyable result, anyway. A bit nervy towards the end, but it was um, a good weekend, all in all. Victor Lindelof was outstanding that game. Yeah, I think uh, an underrated player, really. Yeah. He never lets the club down. Really good on the ball. Great passing range. And he was excellent, excellent at the weekend. Mm. Do you go to Manchester United regularly? When we can. I'm based down in um, Cambridge, so it's a bit okay. of a, a bit of a drive up. We'll <laughs> get the opportunity. Never, um, never pass up the opportunity to go yeah. back to Old Trafford. Mm-hmm. When you were at Manchester United, you were in the academy First and foremost, I believe. Were you coached by Paul McGuinness? Yeah, so Paul was heavily involved in my sort of development at the club. I signed for Man United when I was 14. The structure was very different back then when I was sort of coming through. So I used to just go up on a weekend on a Friday. I'd leave school early, travel up on the train to Manchester, be on the, the bench for the A or the B team on the Saturday morning and then play for my age group team mm-hmm. on a Sunday morning and travel home. And then every school holidays, I'd go up to Manchester and train every day. And there was no sort of evening training back then. So it was purely sort of games and training during the school mm-hmm. holidays. What was Paul like? Paul's actually been on the podcast here before. And when it finished, I learned genuinely so much in the hour he gave us that I, I still use it now when in my writing, if I'm talking about a, a match analysis or a team analysis when I'm writing about a team, I'll use little things that maybe a centre-forward will do. Like he speaks about the, I remember he talked about the cat and mouse between the centre-forward and the, the centre-half. Yeah. Stuff like that blew me away. It was like such a great analogy for, you know, the mouse to get away from the cat to kind of get to the box for us. I loved it. Was Like, what, what kind of stuff was he, was he, was he massively beneficial to your development in the early days? Because I know he was, he, he, I mean, he was co- he was coaching at Manchester United for twenty seven years. He went from the the class of ninety two right up to Marcus Rashford's age group, which is crazy. 
Yeah, I think Paul Paul was obviously huge in in all the young players' development in the coaching terms. But I think the the biggest memories of Paul is how ingrained he was and the other coaches in sort of the the culture of Manchester United. Obviously, mm-hmm. a history there as a as a player going through the academy himself, getting a an injury within the reserve team and never breaking through for the first team. But such a a one club man, really, like Manchester United with was in his veins and obviously the the lessons that you learn and what was expected of a Manchester United player was come from Paul to us young players as well as the other coaches there mm-hmm. at the time. But I think he was hugely beneficial in all the, the young players' developments that he was that he was working with and the the sort of the the range of age groups that he worked with was from the the youngest ages right up to those within their scholarship, within their YTS scheme. So Paul was Mr. Manchester United, as it were, and a, a fantastic man and a fantastic coach. Well, I mean, his father as well managed Manchester United, Wilf. So it's almost like he, you're right, he was just ingrained in him from a young age that Manchester United blood almost. It's crazy. And and then he, he worked himself for Manchester United for 27 years, went on to England then and and coached the national teams and, and the develop, or developed players there too. So, I mean, just I wanted to ask you about Paul because... He was one of my favorite guests to get on because of how much I learned from him. Genuinely, was was astonishing. Just I, I felt like I had done like a year's training with him, and I was just on a Zoom call. It was it was genuinely bizarre. So yeah, I'm 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 happy to hear that you you had fond memories of him. Um, you said that kind of he was massive in helping ingrain that culture into Manchester United from a young age. Was that? I know you've spoken before on podcasts about the force team and the intensity was that there with with the with the reserve sides as well and with the U teams was that always kind of was it really heavily competitive yeah i think it it was you knew that started from the moment you signed for the club as a 14 15 year old you knew what was expected of you sort of mm-hmm. thing it was a huge honor to play for for manchester united and i think everyone appreciated that and what was expected in representing the club whether that be on the training field on a on a Monday morning or at a club function whatever it may be everything was expected to be bang on as it were this was it didn't feel like a normal football club this was something that mm-hmm. we were we were privileged to be a part of and to to maintain them standards and to learn about them standards I think served all of us in really good stead in terms of whether we played for the first team once, whether we never played for the first team, whether we went on to have a career in football or a career in in other sort of livings that the players may have done. I think that upbringing at Manchester United was huge in terms of the life skills that you learn as much as anything else, as, as well as uh, the sort of football, the, the really high quality football coaching that you received as well. Mm-hmm. I had Chris Casper on the podcast too, when he came through Manchester United's academy with the class of 92. Now, I, I believe he only made one appearance for the club, which is still one more than, than, than most have the, the honour of, of making. But I asked him about his role with Salford City as the sporting director, and he, he talked about his kind of difficulties and struggles with being in such a competitive environment, because Manchester United is one of the most competitive academies in English football and certainly in Europe as well. I, I'd imagine... It's a lot of stress on a, on a on a young person as well, and and he talks about how he has used that experience now in his role with Salford to help players who are in Salford's academy, but they have to be let go because they can't make it. 
And he said it's 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 still difficult for them, of course, but he believes that his experience has helped them. In terms of, and, and the, sorry, the reason I bring this up is because I know you've said before about um, academies in English football, the, I think you said that the, the minimum limit for a player going into a professional club is 13. And I actually kind of, I tend to agree um, I have. I, I wasn't brought up in that professional environment, but I thought it was a really, really interesting point you made, and I, I, I want to, I want to have a kind of conversation about it here because, how did, I mean, did you feel that kind of pressure that maybe Chris felt as well the Manchester United Academy because it's as I said it's the it's such a, a competitive place I'd imagine and did did did, it, did you feel it as a young player I, I, I'd imagine that's a lot. Yeah, I think I felt it a lot in the early days when I started going up there and I was playing in my age group and a lot of the other boys played for England and the mm-hmm. Scotland, like the various national teams that I went a part of and sort of thought maybe motivated me to know that I've got to work a little bit harder because these players are already at such a high level. But in terms of sort of the pressure after a period of time, it sort of, of comes away. The, the club had a way of making you you feel part of it regardless of how big a part you played in it sort of thing, whether you were a 15-year-old schoolboy, mm. an 18-year-old YTS player or a regular first-team player. Everyone seemed to be feel part and of something incredibly special, which it was at the time, obviously, with the, the success the club was having. I can't say sort of I felt a huge amount of pressure when I when I moved up there because it, it became me. That was my job then and I was working as hard as I can and had some initial success sort of done really well and got loads of confidence from from doing well in them them early years. But I think once you sort of go into that first team environment, when I look back now, sometimes I think I can't believe that I've done that playing with them them players. But I think that is sort of the the innocence of youth, the joy of youth mm. of going into an environment that was obviously looking back now, a, a, one of the most elite environments that there's been in football, but sort of going in there to to express yourself and doing the, the very best you can to, to stay in that environment. Obviously, I didn't sustain that. I didn't do it for a prolonged period of time and probably coming to the end for understood that I wasn't at the level to to stay at the club any longer and then to go away and sort of forge your career and find a pathway mm-hmm. in professional football. But I completely understand what where Chris is coming from then. Obviously, he's done a fantastic job at Salford, a hugely intelligent guy. And I'm sure the the lessons that he learned from his time at Manchester United mm-hmm. have served him in incredibly good stead to, to enjoy the success he had on the other side of it now in terms of the role that he's got at, at Salford City. I actually watched the game, I think it was a couple of weeks ago now. I've watched this game regularly. That probably shows, that's probably quite sad, actually, when I've said it out loud. But it was the, uh, I think it was the, was it the 5-1 against Arsenal? You you came on. You were actually excellent when you came on. I think it was 5 it was Dwight York's got, it was, it was a one where there was a lot of goals. Yeah, yeah. I half. think it was, um, I think it finished 6-1. I'm not 100 6-1. <laughs> I, um, I think Arsenal took the lead and then Dwight York scored a hat. I think it was 5-1 at half yeah. time. I think I, there's not much damage I could have done at that point. You <laughs> threw me on to to have a run about. But there was the, it was it was known as the or at least I know it as the bless him the infamous Igor Stepanov's game where he he, he, he it, it wasn't a, it wasn't his his you know 
a great part of his career. I'll just say he had quite a poor game, but yeah, it was that match. And I just wanted to say you came on. I actually thought you were excellent. I know, I know. Obviously, Arsenal were kind of down, but you, you, you were dribbling against. I can't remember the player you were dribbling against, and you got by him a number of times. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, I thought it was really impressive. Yeah, thank <laughs> you very much. It was, obviously, it's a great memory to have to have been on the pitch. Obviously, with my incredible teammates, but playing against the yeah. like Thierry Henry, Patrick Vieira, it was um, mm. a wonderful experience. And I remember. Yorkie was just unplayable that day. And I think that was a reason Stefanod's had a bit of a stinker because yeah. <laughs> no one could get near Dwight on the day and he was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Did, by stepping up to the force team, did that really help you, I'd imagine, improve straight away? Because I'd imagine when you're playing with just just such incredibly talented players, your your floor automatic or your ceiling automatically rises because you're coming into a training session and you've you've Paul Scholes, you've you've uh, Roy Keane, I mean there's a, a, David Beckham, a plethora of other amazing players. Was was I mean did your game improve massively in that, especially in the was it the O one oh or O one season was where you made twenty something appearances for the club and that was the, the, the you won the Premier League that season as well. Yeah a hundred percent I think you your development is accelerated greatly by playing mm-hmm. with better players. Obviously, you have to step up to the mark and to, to perform at that the level of the your peers every day. I, I was out on loan at Royal Antwerp in Belgium, doing quite well out there, enjoying playing first-team football, and then was called back to United. And I thought I was just going back to be a reserve team player because I've been a, away for a long time. I was quite surprised to go straight back in training with the first team. I'd never really trained with the first team before, before I went out to, to, to Antwerp. And when I got back, it was um, quite a, a stark eye opener in terms of what was expected at Antwerp. I was in the team every week. One of the, one of the better players that was, mm-hmm. would it be one of the standout players at United was obviously completely different in the first training session. I was a little bit sloppy with a ball, gave it away a couple of times and, Roy Keane sort of told me in no uncertain terms that that's not what's going to, that's not what can happen here if you're going to stay in this. And it was a real Mm. sort of eye-opening moment where you understand that this isn't sort of, Antwerp was a wonderful football club. I loved it there, but the levels were completely different as it were, as it were compared to Manchester United. And when it, excuse me, when he told me, was sort of shouting at me, I was a bit, taken aback. Then after the, the session, he took me to one side and explained the reason why he does that, why he'll continue doing that, not just to me, but all the players, because if they want to win trophies at the end of every season, the stand, it all starts in training. The standards have got to be there every day to achieve success. And it was a real moment where you think, okay, if this is what you want to do, you've got to be on it every day. You've got mm-hmm. to work as hard as you possibly can every day, be good on the ball every day. And it was like you mentioned there, without a doubt, it accelerates anyone's development playing with better football players. Rio Ferdinand also or has talked about quite a lot in the past that training was harder than the actual matches at Manchester United because you don't have to play against, when he was at the club, he didn't have to play against Cristiano and, and, and Roy Keane and Paul Scholes, etc. Did you get the same kind of vibe as it was training? Because like, we always hear about the infamous training sessions where it was just so, so difficult, but but I obviously want to ask you because you were there. What were the training yeah. sessions like? What, and what kind of what kind of training was it? What kind of what kind of sessions were being put on at the time? Was it just small sided games? Yeah. So the majority of sessions we done 
in the season where I came back from Belgium, there wasn't a huge amount of tactical training that we'd done. Mm -hmm. It was most days was small-sided possessions, small-sided games, but it was incredibly intense. Obviously, I was a squad player that didn't play a huge amount, but you'd still train every day. And I remember at the, the end of that season, it was sort of physically, it was hard, but emotionally as well, because every day was a real sort of, battle both teams whoever was on them were desperate to win and it was it was so intense and I think that environment of sort of competition that was there every day with world-class players wanting to win and it was an incredible sort of time to be involved in the club mm. because it was every day without a doubt everyone was on it and it was um like I say incredibly demanding but so rewarding at the same time if you won a game or you scored a goal in training it felt so good because it was celebrated <laughs> on a game on a Saturday or a Sunday but to you, both teams were so desperate to to win the game to mm -hmm. sort of prove their point to get a place in the the team on the on the weekend when you went to Belgium were you with um apologies I can't remember a second name Johan was that the manager? Was was he the manager in, in Royal Antwerp? So Johan Boskamp was my Boskamp, manager yeah, at Stoke. So he he was in Belgium. I think he was a manager of Genk at the time. Ah. Well, I played against his team. So when I signed for Stoke, he knew me from mm. my time in in Belgium at Antwerp. When you were at Antwerp, then and and this is something actually I, I I've jotted down as important questions because I, I wanted to ask you. Manchester United aren't affiliated, I don't believe, with Royal Antwerp anymore. I could be wrong, but I don't believe they are. There are a number of clubs that have those kind of feeder clubs. You loan players out. Chelsea had um, Vitesse Arnhem in, in the Dutch league as well, and they were kind of farming players almost out to this club. I mean, I th was was Mason Mount there? I believe Mason Mount was there. Yeah, there was, I believe so. Yeah, there's a number of players that were there. Is... is do you think it's a it's a good thing or a bad thing? I know Chelsea were done for this in 2019 in terms of there was legal repercussions for what they were doing with young players that they were signing an abundance of young players and then they weren't really playing them. They were getting loaned out. Arsene Wenger was very vocal about this in the past. And now even though I know Royal Antwerp aren't part of Manchester United's kind of system anymore, but even Man City have the City group and they have clubs like Melbourne and New York City and they have Bayern and, and, and Man City, of course, as well. They have a plethora of clubs all over the world where they kind of, and the Red Bull clubs too, sorry, they kind of, they trade players within each other. Is that a positive thing, do you believe, for football? Do you think feeder clubs, what what was your, the question I'll ask you is, what was your genu general opinion of, of your time in Belgium? Was it, was it a pos positive time for your growth? Uh, 100% it was the best thing that could have happened to me at the time. I think mm -hmm. the the partnership that Antwerp and Manchester United had was around two, three, four players every year from the younger age groups going out there and gaining experience and also a way, I think, in terms of work permits for talented Asian-African players to go over to Belgium and get whatever was needed to then mm -hmm. travel to England. But in my respect, and I think in... In terms of if the player is sort of 100% behind it, I don't see how it can be a bad thing in terms of both the footballing experience and the the life experience that's gained by a young player going out to, mm -hmm. to live in a foreign country to experience a, 
a different culture, a different city, a different country. And I think in in my respect, I was so eager to go out there to to play football for the main reason. But then looking back now, the sort of lessons that you learn both as a football player and like I say, in, within life lessons, it was a, a hugely beneficial thing for me. I think in terms of feeder clubs in general, again, I think it gives people an experience to to go and play football. If it's there, obviously the the city group and whatnot have got a, a number of different clubs where they mm. can send players. You don't read, or I've, I've not read a huge amount of their young reserve team, youth team players going out to play there. But I think the experience that it that it does offer can only be a positive so long as the the individual who's obviously the most important person in it is 100% going into it with the right mindset to go and both play football and, and learn about themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's men's football at the end of the day, isn't it? Because I feel like it's, you, you hear stories as well of people who, you know, professionals say it's so, so important that young players get experience in the men's game. Obviously what we mean by that is the professional game as opposed to, to youth football, which can be, I mean, what, like, you'd be, of course, more more or better place to speak about this than I would. What was the main difference in, in not just in Manchester United, I'm just talking about in the men's game as opposed to, to youth football. Was it a little more, was it was it much harder, I suppose, because you're playing against, I'd imagine guys who are well in their 30s and you're a young yeah. kid and they're going to hit you. I think it's just the difference. I think in terms of youth team, reserve team football, obviously it's a vital part of, of any player's development, but going to play in games that really mean something when there's a crowd there, that sort mm-hmm. of that experience is is vital for any players. Of course, everyone has their own development plan, their own pathway where some extremely talented players will just go straight into the the first team at a young age where some sort of find their way going out on loan to go back to their their parent clubs to play football. But I think that the feeling of it meaning something, you've got Blokes there, like you say, 35-year-old fellas, 30-year-old fellas that are playing for their mortgage at the end of the day. It, yeah. it means something. I think it, it means so much more to be part of that. And it feels, it makes you feel like a footballer. Obviously, playing for the youth team on a Saturday morning at the cliff in front of 40-odd mm. people is a completely different experience of playing in Antwerp in front of 10,000 people. There's sort of smoke bombs and whatnot going off. The atmosphere is electric. And I think that was such a positive experience to be able to to go and do that. And for your own sort of self-confidence as well to realise I'm actually doing this now. I'm doing what I, I always dreamed. I'm playing in front of people. I'm running around. They're singing your name. It was, it, for me, it was the most fantastic experience I could have asked for, really. And what was it like then in that other I suppose you're in a different culture altogether. David Moyes actually spoke uh, speaks a lot about how coaches should go abroad and experience coaching in different cultures. But you obviously played in in different cultures. You played in English football. You played in in, in Belgium too. Was the culture massively different? Was it really was it really eye opening? What kind of stuff did you learn? Yeah, I think it was a different, obviously a different culture in Belgium. The training was was very different in terms of it was a lot more sort of technical where we do a lot of drills working on technique, a lot of individual stuff. Even when we had our, we'd all eat together every day and we'd have to mm-hmm. wait for everyone to be there and the manager would say a word and then we were allowed to start eating their food. So it, it was it was very different in terms of the style of football as well compared to uh, an English game, for example. The build-up was um, 
a lot slower. There was a lot more possession football. But I think it's it was just more understanding that you can do this. You can you can play mm-hmm. in a first team environment. You can listen to the crowd and sort of whether that be a home fans that are right behind you, the away fans that are really sort of partisan and against. <laughs> it, was, it was such a an eye opening experience to then go back to to Manchester to it to sort of sample it on a whole different level then when you're at a club like Manchester United. Did it ever cross your mind? I know this is somewhat of a, a darker question, but did it ever cross your mind that you you wouldn't make it in professional football when you were in an academy? And the reason I ask you that is because I want to kind of discuss players that don't quite make it. You know, was, was was there ever that thought in your mind or was it always positive that you, you knew you were going to make it, you were going to make it in professional football? Yeah, I never, not in a sort of arrogant or egotistical way, I never had a, a sort of doubt in my mind, even as a child, that I would that I'd become a professional footballer. Mm-hmm. And obviously through my formative years, done done well enough. Obviously as a 14-year-old boy, signing for Manchester United was something that gave me huge confidence and even more belief came from that. So I don't think, I never moved up to Manchester and expected to, thought I was going to be a, a superstar in the Manchester United team. Obviously that's what you dreamed of, but I didn't expect that. But I always, I, I never doubted that my job would be a football player and that's what that's what I would do. Mm. It, I know each kind of experience is different, of course, but is is there uh, while you didn't obviously you you said you didn't you you always kind of felt you knew you were going to make it but there would be a lot of players that kind of even fall out of love with the game by the point where they even get to make it to a professional level because tying into a, a point I said earlier they're thrown into this academy environment so young and I live here, of course, in the Republic of Ireland. I'm sure you could tell by now by my <laughs> my Dublin accent. Um, so the, the pressure wouldn't be nearly as much as it is over at English football, where the the clubs are so massive, especially in Premier League clubs and that kind of academy system. But just from my time, even with coaching in an academy, the stress, I won't name the academy, of course, the stress I felt was put on young players was kind of damning and a little uh, worrying. Did, do you do you do you feel that a lot of players when they get put like six seven year olds getting signed to Manchester United is like would they even know how would they even understand the pressure of that? Yeah, I think that's where that there's something that I'm not comfortable with completely. I'm not sure if I would have gone into a, an academy how it is now at seven eight however old years mm-hmm. old trained three times a week up until the age of sixteen, then found out if I was going to get a scholarship, I don't think I would have had the same career I've had now. I think it was that falling in love with the game as a child, playing with my friends, playing in grassroots football that really made me fall in love with the game. It was something that I I couldn't live without. I couldn't wait to get there. I think there is a sort of fear in my mind, and I could be completely wrong, that when children are signed up at seven years old, they train three times a week They and they do that till mm-hmm. they're 15. I completely understand how you could fall out of love with a game in terms of the the stresses that come with that, the sort of time of year where they're finding out if they're getting retained or released and whatnot. And for me, kids go into that environment way, way too early. Obviously, mm-hmm. I understand 
the reason behind that, because that's what every club does. Every club's scared of losing the next big thing. But in reality, how does anyone know a child of seven is going to develop and be a footballer at the age of 18, 19? And I think that is something that was a big reason of me stepping away from professional football, because it didn't really sit comfortable, comfortably with me in terms of what the children go through. And that might mm. sound quite hypocritical. Both of my children went through that sort of academy experience and are still going through it now, but it's, it has to be fun if they don't enjoy it. And I think there is that fear and there's too much love that can be lost if you're released at 13 years old, or if you're just overtrained specifically doing very similar things three times a week where it, for me, it's just, it's not right. But again, I completely understand why it happens and I don't envisage that changing anytime soon. And I mean, I think it's only 1% make it to the professional game. I mean, 99% don't. And they've gone through, I mean, some of them have gone through from seven till 18, say, so 11 odd years of that really kind of intense. And, and as you said, like every year finding out if you're being retained or not, like that's a, that's a lot of stress for a young kid, especially if their dream is to play for a certain club and they're at Manchester United and when they're 17, it turns around, the club turn around and say, look, we don't think you're good enough and they get let go. That must be crushing. And and um, the reason I brought this up was because it obviously kind of it ties into the Football Fun Factory, but it also ties into an article that it was an interview Trent Alexander-Arnold did with The Guardian recently. He started an initiative called the After Academy Initiative, I believe it's called, where they, yeah, they, they, they obviously they're, they're sponsored, I think they're sponsored by a couple of places like Red Bull, etc. But they, the initiative is to help players who don't make it into academy level because he was one of the lucky ones. I just like, like you were a very, not, not lucky, you obviously deserve, you earned the right to play in the professional game. But it, yeah, you know, I think there's so much luck that comes with yeah. it. I think every professional footballer has had some luck along the way it mm. might be being in the right place at the right time staying fit when other players got injured and I think there is so much luck that comes into it. and just sort of going back to what you talk about then I think there's no issue in terms of being at a club from age of eight to the age of 18 and then going getting released if the child's had a, a wonderful experience mm-hmm. doing it and I think that's where the message can get lost at times when children are signed at nine years old, sold a dream that they're going to be yeah. the next big thing. And then the the journey gets lost. It's all about the destination. It's all around becoming that professional footballer. And if you don't become that, it's seen as failure when in reality, it's, it's not failure at all. If you've had a brilliant experience, you would mm-hmm. have got some incredible experience throughout that years because the academies do do some fantastic work, but it, the, the messaging has to be so much better where it's not a failure getting yeah. released. It's not this whole taboo subject. It's all secrets until you find out the last minute. And I think that's where the game can be broken to a certain extent because there is so many brilliant experiences, but expectations need to be managed. As an eight-year-old child, you have no idea what you're going <laughs> to do when you're older, but you've got a opportunity to enjoy every second at a mm-hmm a professional football club, but I think sometimes they don't because I've got to get kept on. I've got to get to the next stage and the enjoyment gets lost along the way. Yeah. I, I can't help but feel as well that even, even as a 13, 14 year old, you wouldn't really understand the pressure of 
of of I suppose not making it. You wouldn't know. Like you see, I think the BBC did a brilliant documentary last year. I want to say, and and they were looking at footballers who didn't make it in our professional clubs and the struggles of that afterwards on their their health and them still trying and they were failing and it was really damning when you see it from that point of view but I was like as a 13 14 year old even you wouldn't even understand that side of it you wouldn't understand that feeling because you don't really know any financial repercussions etc because you're I mean 13 I remember being 13 14 I didn't give a toss about money <laughs> no one cares about money you know what I mean you just want to go to uh, yeah. with your friends um what I do want to ask you or, or say to you is one of the things that that stood out to me so much from the football fun factory and I know this sounds kind of corny but the word fun it seems almost to get lost in the sport that we all love, you know. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, we obviously a young company launched around four years ago now and have grown really quickly, which is fantastic for mm-hmm. us. But at the same time, a little bit sad, really, that there's that fun's not been talked about in football because it is all about development, getting better, being the next superstar, mm-hmm. when in reality... The only reason we start playing football when we're five, six, seven is because we love it, don't we? That, that's the reason we started playing football, regardless of if you're Lionel Messi or someone who's not in football anymore, but they, they still love football. And I think them early experiences are so important. I remember when I started playing, when I was little, our first team in grassroots was under nines. And that was when I went and played for my local village team. And I can't remember any sort of tactical or technical information I was given back then. But I remember that I absolutely loved it because the coach made it incredibly fun mm-hmm. and we were all playing and running around with our friends and it was absolutely brilliant. And it was because of the then positive first experiences that I had in football in the game is without doubt why I became a professional footballer. But more importantly than that, it's the reason why I still love football as a as an old sod today, I still love the game because of them early experiences. And that's what the the Football Fun Factory is. It's trying to give every child that attends the programmes an opportunity to play purely for fun and then fall in love with the game. So it's not a development programme. We're not attached to professional teams trying to get kids into academies or anything like that. But what we are doing is trying to make sure that kids at four or five years old have an incredible first experience in football and they fall in love with the game so then when they're 40 odd years old like me they still absolutely love it because they think back to remembering the fun they had as a child and that's what I used to do throughout my footballing career obviously there was massive challenges along the way but I'd always remind myself of of why I'm playing and the reason no one starts playing at six years old because they think they're going to make a load of money out of the game they start playing because Football is incredible and it's a great thing to do. So that's uh, the Football Fun Factory is a hugely rewarding organisation to be involved with because that is purely what we're trying to do, help children, boys and girls of any ability understand that it doesn't matter how good you are, you can still love football and you can still play football. I mean, it's so true as well. Like You're right, there's no six, seven-year-old thinking... Oh, I can have a mansion one day and I can buy this car. This just want to. They just want to have the ball. They want to dribble with it, kick it against the wall, and it's something that's that's that seems to always have been consistent with you, Luke. Because you, on the I think it was the podcast, the Joe podcast with with Steve Sidwell and uh, Joe Cole, was it? Yeah, you. I think it was Joe Cole. 
might, I know it might have been Steve Sidwell, sorry. He he spoke about how when you were waiting for away games, you you were the first there and you'd always be kicking the ball up again. You know, you'd always have the ball and you'd be kicking it around. And and that just, to, to me, that seems like it was just, you always loved having the ball. You always loved the sport. It wasn't a, you know, sometimes even professionals can get lost in the whole, it's a job thing, but you all love the, the sport. 100%, I think it is. And I think you need that in terms of, it has to come from the heart to play football. I'm mm-hmm. sure every top player in the world absolutely loves it. I think that it can get lost. I had my challenges when you sort of, it turns into a job, you start earning loads of money and it can sort of go to your head a little bit. You sort of develop more of an ego because you think you're important because you're, you're earning a load of money when in reality it doesn't, it doesn't matter a jot really. And like I say, it was always going back to, to just playing football. I've, when I think back to the memories I've had, probably my main memories are, are playing in the school playground and sort of dribbling mm-hmm. with a ball, taking it round everyone. And that's why I love football today because I just loved having a ball at my feet. Obviously, when it does get more serious, but it, it always has to come down to how much you enjoy doing something. Because if you don't enjoy doing something, it's more or less impossible to be successful at it. Was there a point in, in your playing career then when you knew you wanted to go into coaching or because I think you did your badges after you retired. Is that correct? Yeah. So when I was sort of coming to the end of my career, I went and done my level two qualification. That was probably at the age of 33. And then when mm-hmm. my career finished, I went through the UA for B, the UA for A, the youth awards, the advanced youth awards. And it was something I never, I never saw myself as a coach. I, when I come to the end of my career, it's probably the most, challenging time of my life and I think a lot of ex-football ex-sports people will say that because that sort of loss of identity what am I I used to be a football player that's what I was known of now I'm nothing really which was Mm -hmm. really tough to to deal with and I in my mind it was just do your coaching because that's what old footballers do they they get their coaching qualifications and become a coach and it was in, so challenging in terms of doing the level two. I've done it with the the PFA, a bunch of old footballers or players that were still playing and sort of went through that qualification. It took me so far out of my, my comfort zone. I was so uncomfortable sort of being in charge of a session, taking it from my peers. And it was something that it was a real fantastic learning experience. Obviously, the FA do fantastic courses it I learned loads about being a coach but probably more importantly about about myself that I can do something different that perhaps mm. I could be quite good at this and it was something that I never saw myself doing like I, I never had any interest in in being a manager of a first team and that sort of thing it just wasn't something that was interested me at all really but I was had a real interest in helping young players and developing young players through coaching. So it was a really um, challenging but rewarding time in terms of going through my my coaching qualifications. So when did the football fun factory idea come to fruition then? So the, I was um, working with within an academy probably for around three and a half years and it was there was fantastic parts to the role. I loved helping. I, I was probably more into helping the pe- the person mm-hmm. rather than the player, as it were. It was obviously I had 
knowledge from being a professional footballer from my qualifications and supported the the team and setting up the team structure but it was always around knowing that when a person's happy and they understand themselves that they they're obviously going to perform better whatever they choose to to do whether that be football or something completely different but there was a lot of stuff that went with it like I say the the kids coming in so early then the letting players go at such a young age and that sort of thing that it, it just wasn't me and I knew that I didn't want to it, it wasn't what I was going to do for the rest of my life I, I needed to to do something different and around the same time so a couple of my ex colleagues at, came, at the club I was working for at James Cutting and Johnny Martin were setting up the football fun factory and I didn't really know much about it really mm-hmm. but they I went on a podcast funnily enough with them that they were talking about it and um the way that they spoke about it it reminded me so much of what I was speaking about earlier of when I was first playing football and what them feelings were and the thoughts that it provoked. And it was something that I thought, I absolutely love this and I want to get involved with it. So that's when I decided that that was going to be my my next step, sort of coming on board with the Football Fun Factory. It's a franchise organisation. So I was one of the first franchisees, set up my community in the the area where I grew up in a couple of villages in South Cambridgeshire and Mm -hmm. started running them sessions. And again, it took me so far out my comfort zone, obviously working in a elite environment within an academy where it was all around sort of getting the coaching points uh, across, really trying to stretch them most gifted and talented players where they would be the, at the forefront of the, of my mind when planning sessions to just, everyone just having fun and success for the session wasn't getting across five or six coaching points that were going to develop the kids. It was every child leaving the session at the end of the, the hour or whatever they were training with a massive smile on their face. And it felt so much more rewarding in terms of that. And it yeah. took uh, all the pressure away from coaching points as trying to get the kids to fall in love with the ball and fall in love with football, which was again, challenging at times but something that was like I say so so rewarding it must have been strange though to, to because you've been in elite football all your all your life to kind of move into that environment then it must have been like or maybe kind of a was it a weight off your shoulders almost it was it just more relaxed and it was it was just much I suppose like I, I'd imagine as you said elite football can be very stressful for coaches and players but in that environment it's just more relaxed and people have fun yeah, I think it got to that. It certainly yeah. wasn't that in the early days. I remember we'd run programs for like toddlers. We all, all the coaches have an inflatable football pitch, and I had my first session with a group of two to five year old children, and it. I was at, I was so scared to deliver that, thinking, "What am I going to do? <laughs> They're not going to understand what I'm saying." And I sat. I set the cones up, sat them all down, sort of told them what I'd like them to do. No, obviously no one listened. They were throwing <laughs> all over, booting the balls about. But the end of the session, they were they were leaving with their mum or dad, mm-hmm. asking them when when can I come back to football? And for me, that was the most rewarding sessions that I've ever done with them tiny little ones who were just the first time they've ever kicked a football. For them, football was playing inside an inflatable football pitch with massive footballs. That that's what it looked like. And I think to be able to be a child's first football coach is such a a massive honour, really, mm-hmm. because we all remember our first football coach, whether they be a, a posit- had a positive impact on us or a negative. And 
it's so to be able to do that and to to see children again years later and they remember you as your first coach is sort of knowing that you you've done a good job in terms of that and I think it is it is so different in terms of what the coaching is and what it looks like but but coaching's coaching regardless whether you're in a high level elite environment or a football fun factory session if the the session's not fun the children aren't going to develop anyway mm. they've got to be enjoying what they're doing and to to see them smile to see them have fun is all for me that's success as a child's football coach i think it's incredibly refreshing to hear you say that as well because i know there's i mean there's a lot of coaches that even at really young levels, so you're talking under nines, under tens, etc. They let their ego get in the way so much of 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 the actual development of the player and the actual, the, I suppose the the player having fun, being able to make decisions for themselves on the pitch, you know. And the, and you you see these coaches and they're telling their players to line up in in this if it's five aside and you go with like a diamond and then the goalkeeper. And I think doesn't matter it's an eight-year-old like he doesn't understand he doesn't understand what a center half is or what a, what a winger is or a center forward or a goalkeeper just you know i think coaches especially not all of them of course but there is a, a massive wave of people who let their ego take over at the academy level and and i suppose that ties into again why maybe players are the minimum age for requirement for a player to join a, an elite academy should probably be 13 onwards because then you start it starts getting a little trickier and, and then you start teaching the player tactical stuff. And I think that's more important. It's more important to develop the player in the early years, whereas people are trying to be, you know, Jose Mourinho on the sideline at, on the right level. And I just think yeah, it's, yeah. it's... And I think, I think on that, I think it's so crazy what a football pitch can do to people. Still yeah. like Regardless if you're someone's parent, Parents, you play, yeah. whether you're the coach. And it is around... I mean, that was a massive, another reason why I stepped away from mm. professional football because because of my because of the the ego the the ego that I noticed that I was having I, I I couldn't control the game because I wasn't playing it anymore and I would stand at the side of the football pitch and moan at the referee and shout at the, the team that I was coaching and I I got to the point where I I couldn't stand the sound of my own voice and having the the self self awareness to sort of recognise that and step away and do something that is having a positive impact in my local mm. community by coaching the children in the right way. And I, I completely understand where you're coming from on that. And there is a huge amount of, of ego in terms of that. When And what I noticed myself is that I was developing, well, obviously we've all got an ego, but mine was not that I, what I wanted it to be. Mm. Stepping away from being around that and myself being around that was a huge help in my own sort of personal development as well. And I think it is when football turns into the coach and this is in all levels of football, but more obviously more sort of obvious in children's football. And I completely understand what you, you walk around the Sunday park on a, I'm sorry, the park on a Sunday morning, there's an under sevens and the coaches are, are going mad the parents are screaming and it, mm -hmm. it is when the the game becomes a, about the coach and not the child then that's when football is completely broken and that's unfortunately what 
can happen a lot at all yeah. levels of football, particularly in the UK at the moment. Yeah. And, uh, there there seems to be, and you're right, it's particularly in the UK, there seems to be an obsession with managers and, and you see all the time they'll they'll pit uh, a Mourinho versus a, whatever coach and, and then they'll say, oh, this is the record against each other. And I think, why does it... They've they've they're if they've managed different teams, different groups of players. Like, okay, if you pit Jose versus a manager in League Two, he'll probably win most of the games. It's just not an indictment on the the League Two manager. It's the players are better. People yeah. have such a, a lack of awareness when it comes to coaches, and, and I'm glad you said that because in the UK, especially and in Ireland, there seems to be this thing that the coaches kind of are the most important thing in football. And they are not. Like, uh, I think it's Simon Cooper wrote uh, Soccernomics before the book, and he said in it something along the lines of uh, a manager equates to buying a really good player. That's the impact. Yeah, 100%. It is all about the players on the pitch at the end. And I think we have, we're obsessed with comparing. I think the saying is comparisons that the FIFA joy, but all we seem to want to do is compare. Yeah. Obviously, the, the kids that they're playing, the manager, everyone compares everything. When in reality, everyone's got their own mm-hmm. journey to go on. Everyone just let them enjoy that journey. And I think as soon as we cut start comparing, it, it just it all falls around on our feet, really, because there's no development going on when yeah. comparison is the most important thing or seems to be at times, again, particularly in, in our part of the world. Luke, the last question I want to ask you is, because I'm aware we're coming up to time now, I know this question is kind of out of place in terms of the, the flow of the podcast, but I wanted to ask anyway. Um, from the type of player you were when you were young to the player at Cambridge United that, that was coming towards the end of his career, how did your how did your your own career develop in terms of your playing style? Because I know like Ryan Giggs, who was an out-and-out winger, of course, he was a former teammate of yours. He was an out-and-out winger, but then towards the end of his career, he became a central midfielder. And he, yeah. I think he hired like a vision coach or something so he could like see more of the pitch, which I thought was crazy. But uh, it was pretty cool, yeah. But um, how did your career develop in that sense in terms of how you... Because you, I didn't want to say it like this, but respectfully, you would have lost your pace as you got as you got older. 100%, 100%. I think in terms like with the player that I was coming through as a child, coming up through the ranks at, at Manchester United, the, the biggest strength that I had was I was incredibly fast, sort of freakishly fast, was able to run with the ball as as fast with it as I was without it, which was my game, really. Every time I got the mm-hmm. ball, I'd try to dribble and run at players. I was a, a playground player, all them sort of school lunch times that I was running with a ball and after my um, first year at United, when I was in the first team, that 2000-2001 season, I had a couple of injuries, which resulted in some surgery to my hip and pelvis and probably didn't come back from that with the same explosive speed that I did mm-hmm. have. Maybe lost a little bit of that. And whereas I probably, well, guilty of not developing other parts of my game, I always used to rely on that. And whereas... Obviously, David Beckham and Ryan Giggs that played in my positions could affect the game in numerous different ways with the the obvious talent that they had, where I could see that I wasn't having the same effect. And Alex, Sir Alex Ferguson pulled me into his office and sort of told me without that sort of speed, you're not going to 
have a career here and it's going to be tough for you to have a career at the top, top level of the game, which was obviously hard to hear, but mm. really appreciate the honesty and sort of knew it was time to to start a different journey. So my, my game probably began to evolve as a, what age would I have been? 21, 22 year old and sort of trying to change the way I played to a certain extent, understanding that I've, I'm not getting that joy just running with a ball all the time. And it probably took a good few seasons to to develop that and sort of change the way I played slightly and sort of looking for still playing from wide areas, but looking to find pockets in the middle. I remember sort of in the lower leagues, obviously the championship, league one, league two, the non-league where I played, I was always quite fortunate through the lessons that I learned at Manchester United from the day I went up there at, sort of 15 years old, we used to do the same warm-up session in every game where whoever the coach would be, but I remember Eric Harrison was the one that drilled it into us. Before we re- received the ball, we always had to check our shoulders and see yeah. where the space was. See Chris Casper said that to me before. Yeah. He, said, he said it was constantly honest to check our shoulder. <laughs> every day we'd do it, every day. And that served me well in terms of, as I moved inside the pitch, as you Rightly mentioned there, I got slower and slower as my career went on, but sort of understood and had the awareness to to turn into space and to play mm-hmm. forward. So as I moved more central, I then started playing as a number 10 when I was at MK Dons and had real good sort of success there in knowing that I could turn out and travel with the ball a little bit and play little passes. So it, it certainly evolved a lot and was probably forced to evolve because of the the player what that I was compared to the player that I slowly turned into as my as my career went forward. That's an amazing answer. Luke, apologies that I've gone over time. I know I said it would be about 50 minutes, but we've gone over to 52 now. So no that, that, that's my bad. But thank you so much for giving me your time. It was you were so open and honest and I really appreciate it. And and where can people find you? Obviously the please check out the football fun factory for those listening. It's uh, the initiative is amazing and it, it stuck out to me straight away. So I messaged you, I was like, would you like to come on? Cause it was something that really interested me and something I feel passionate about. Also the element of fun has almost been like lost in the game. I feel anyway. No, no, thank, thanks for mentioning. So you can find us on the footballfunfactory.co.uk on all the social media channels, but I've no idea what the, the handles are on that. <laughs> on that. So yeah, if you were, anyone wants to, sort of speak more about it just um drop me a message awesome to all the listeners at home as well i hope you enjoyed and make sure to tune in on tuesday for another episode of the tfa scouted podcast for you all to hopefully enjoy also make sure to rate the podcast too and share it with your followers friends and family as it really helps us to grow thank you all for listening and goodbye for now